Patrick Auger here at the Body Lock at the Fight Business Podcast on May 12th, 2020. Of course, I'm joined by uh, Deputy Editor of the Body Lock, Michael Fidel, and a very special guest with us today to talk about all of the recent UFC COVID-19 waivers and everything that's been coming out this past week. Uh, we have Dan Lust, attorney and sports analyst. You've heard him on ESPN, CBS, Fox Radio, Sirius XM. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, most important question right out the gate, did this with uh, Titan FC COO Lex McMahon. Got to ask you as well, do you have enough toilet paper? Um. Yeah, yes. I don't know if, if that's like a, a question for about to eat Chipotle tonight or something like that. But for the, for the time being, I'm good. I'm good. Might more for the pandemic, but yes, I, I guess we're past that toilet paper hoarding phase. That's a good sign. It's a good sign you thought it was more about Chipotle. I thought you guys had some inside information. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight. Maybe you guys do. No, no, no inside information on that. We're not that good. We're great. We're good at reporting, but not that good. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm here for the law and the jokes, guys. I got both of them for you. Well, perfect. That's, and again, thanks so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Um, just just to dive right in, uh, we, we've been hearing about it all all week, all weekend about the uh, COVID-19 waivers, the document that both fighters and media had to sign in order to uh, participate in UFC 249. Uh, just right off the bat, when you saw that document, when it came across, uh, you know, either Twitter or however, however you saw that, what were your first impressions? Uh, what what stood out immediately? So I'll, I'll tell you, I was at a point, uh, <laughs> it's funny. So uh, my wife has certain rules, you know, during dinner, I'm not supposed to have my phone, but this thing popped up and I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a bombshell. So I, I took the, uh, you know, we'll say the verbal beating for my wife in order to kind of spread the word on this. So um, you know, for those that, that haven't seen it, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're, you're very much into the business of, of the UFC and whatnot. Um, I've been tracking, uh, you know, for really the past two months, how sports are going to come back and what the legal landscape will look like. Um, so for the past two months, the only real, you know, uh, sports that are back, if you want to say that the only show in town has really been WWE and the AEW. Um, but those guys are behind the scenes. You know, you don't really know exactly what's going on behind those sports, what waivers are being signed. But we all kind of had our suspicions. Um, and when this leaks out, um, you know, right, right in advance of USC 249, uh, that there is a, a full waiver uh, in the law. We call that assumption of the risk clause, which is a fancy way of saying um, you agree not to sue the company to the extent that you contract COVID-19, you're infected from it, you have some damages from it. Um, you know, so it was kind of a double header. It was number one. Uh, it was this full assumption of the risk clause, this waiver for getting COVID-19. And the second part of it, was that non-disparagement clause that said if you speak negatively about the you know health and safety protocol of the UFC, uh, particularly at a time during the pandemic, that you were at risk of losing all of your you know your purse for the night and any bonuses that may come. So the double header of those two clauses, um, you know that that really took me back. I, I thought maybe one or the other, definitely not both. Certainly. And one of the things that you touched on there was the assumption of risk clause. I know that the COVID-19 pandemic is something that is unprecedented, but within the realm of sports law, is that kind of an assumption of risk waiver, something that we would see often, or is this something that is unprecedented even in the event of a pandemic? So let's, let's, cause I, you know, everyone listening to this is curious, you know, what fighters liability might be you know, uh, what the, you know, the, the referees, um, but also the fans. So in, in sports, 
you know, this assumption of the risk doctrine, there's something called implied assumption of the risk, like when it's not really said, but you know um, that you're assuming some risk. And the other one is express um, assumption of the risk. So implied assumption of the risk is something like a foul ball at a baseball game. You don't really have to sign any waiver to know that a, fl- a foul ball can come and hit you in the head. Um, you know, something like an express uh, waiver, express assumption of the risk uh, is like when you go skiing and you sign up, you know, or when you go snowmobiling or something like that, where you actually sign a you know piece of paper. Um, so there, there are obviously some inherent risks in the sport of UFC, right? You know, it's not by no means a, a safe sport, um, but those are uh, kind of implied risks. Um, but at a time for the UFC and really all sports, we don't really, um, you know, we don't really know the full risks of COVID-19. We don't know how it affects people. We don't know exactly how it's transmitted. We have some idea, but we, we don't really know. So um, I think it's surprising, you know, right? This is an airborne disease. It's not something that has ever been really contracted for um, in any type of fighter contracts or in, in sports in general. Um, the last time we had anything that, that anywhere resembled this was a hundred years ago with the Spanish, you know, flu. Um, and guys, just as a historical note, you know, the World Series was played under this under these conditions back in 1918. So we have some history of it, but obviously sports law, sports business weren't at where we are now. So it's uncharted territory in that sense. And and as you mentioned, you know, the Spanish flu back in 1918 and other sports playing through that um, in, in terms of this document and it being as explicit as it is, do you think that this is something that could you know, bleed over into other sports like the MLB, NFL, as they ramp up trying to get their seasons going? Um, I I do. Um, you know, and Patrick, I know uh, you, you probably saw my tweet that, that got some exposure um, yesterday. You know, uh, TMZ Sports reported that uh, sports organizations around the country were calling Dana White to ask him how he got it done. So it was funny that TMZ was like, how did, how did you do it, Dana? Question mark. So I, you know, I, I took that opportunity to answer, you know, I wrote answer, colon, they got it done by full assumption of the risk, you know, waiver clauses. And number two, these non-disparagement clauses for health and safety protocol, because the last thing you can do, right? And and I, I guess I should say this. Um, I used to work in, in public relations for the New York Giants for five years. So I come at this from a lawyer. And I think, especially for coronavirus, there's a huge PR hit. So, I mean, I, I think sports have to be very careful to the extent they come back and a player does not feel safe for whatever reason it's going to kind of undermine the whole sport if he can just go out and blast on social media that, hey, I wasn't tested today, or hey, um, you know, this guy is showing symptoms and no one's testing him. So that's why I think, you know, this non-disparagement clause is going to come part and parcel with any type of uh, return to sports because you can't have the athletes undermining it right away. It's such a fragile ecosystem already. And the reason I say that, right, Rudy Gobert, um, you know, two months ago, almost to the day, he tests positive for coronavirus. And that doesn't just shut down basketball, it shut down the entire sports landscape. So when you already have that fragile of a structure, um, it's not going to help the situation by having players kind of speak badly about the leagues or like the UFC. Uh, And guys, on Saturday, we saw a positive test come down. And wouldn't you know, no fighters were talking about it. No fighters said, hey, I had lunch with the guy. Um, And now we know why. Certainly, and that non-disparagement clause has been uh, the subject of a lot of headlines recently, in part because media members who attended the event were also involved in signing those 
uh, rights away, those waivers about non-disparagement. A lot has been talked about about the meaning of disparagement. Can you speak to the legal term and whether or not it covers only false statements made against the promotion, uh, whether or not, for example, if tests were being done to say that there were no tests being done, or does this also expand to negative or critical comments at all? So, you know, I think when you're saying something is not true, you're getting closer to defamation or, or would you say slander or libels if you actually were to write it. Um, Disparagement, it's kind of a, a legal term of art, you know, when you see it, um, it's speaking negatively about the company. Even, I mean, I, I can make the argument, if you said that you felt unsafe by the UFC's protocol and you describe what their procedures were, and I remember, you know, I know when this event was heading forward, UFC 249, that people were saying, you know, the, the testing protocol, and this was just out there, a couple experts were saying that the testing protocol for the UFC was weak, that you know, testing guys when they enter the hotel doesn't really tell you if the guy has coronavirus, you know, the next day or the day after that. And that's what we saw with Souza. He came in, didn't have it. And then a couple of days later, he had it as well as a few of his cornermen. Um, but just in terms of what a non-disparagement clause is, if you were to speak negatively and say, these are the UFC's testing protocol, I don't feel safe by them. You didn't say anything untrue, but you're speaking negatively and you're disparaging the company. Hey, I don't feel safe and I'm put in a position where I have to deal with these non-safe protocols to get a purse for the day. I would say that that's pretty close to disparaging the company, even if you're being truthful. Um, so that's the the kind of fine line you're walking there. And you know, when it comes to the UFC, right, people are gonna say, well, these guys don't have to fight, right? They, they can stay home, you know, and they could speak as negatively about the company as they want, but these guys are, are here to make a living. So they're almost forced to keep their mouth shut if they want to make some money. Definitely. And just to, you know, thank you for that explanation of uh, non-disparagement. That makes that a lot more clear in terms of where that line kind of is. To circle back to um, other sports, as, as you kind of alluded to before, and, and getting this type of contract basically put in place across the MLB, NFL, other sports looking to come back. The biggest difference, or one of the biggest differences, of course, between uh, the UFC and those other leagues is that there's no union in in the UFC whatsoever. Whereas with MLB, you have the players union. I, I, pretty much every other sport that we're talking about has a players union. Do you think there's going to be any pushback or resistance to signing something like that, especially given your definition of non-disparagement? A hundred percent. Yes. Um, you know, I think let's, let's take one step back and then we'll go forward. I mean, the other the other shows in town, right, are WWE and AEW, which, um, you know, they don't have unions either. And it's kind of, you know, everything's moving forward. I'm not, you know, it's in some leagues, you have kind of a democracy where you in order for baseball to return, the Players Association has to agree to it. Same goes for hockey or basketball or football. Um, if Dana White wants UFC to go forward, it's going forward. There's no discussion with the fighters. It's just a matter of which fighters are going to sign up, right? Khabib wasn't there. Um, and so, but the, the show goes on. Um, now, when it comes to uh, something like, uh, you know, Major League Baseball or the NBA or the NFL, um, we're seeing this battle being fought today, particularly uh, in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, the Major League Baseball already agreed to certain salary reductions. Uh, and now it comes out that Major League Baseball wants to lower that further and tie the players' salaries to what the revenue coming into the league would be. It's, a, it's an interesting scenario. I'm happy to get into it. But um, it, it, when, it, when push comes to shove, the players don't have to play, right? They can just have a strike to the extent that they don't agree to Major League Baseball's terms. Um, so that's what it comes down to. The union's not going to sign anything, uh, and they have a lot of power. 
you know, for as much power as a lockout brings, you have the power of a strike. Um, and you just don't really see that in sports without the union. Um, you know, just it's the, the, the ability to have something like that, a strike, um, you know, I think says waves, but that's why UFC is going forward. That's why they're pumping out events. And if you don't want to be a part of it, um, again, you don't have to be. And I think also, guys, one one note on this, um, UFC and WWAW, they have the benefit of being a kind of individual sport. They're not a team sport. These team sports have this larger issue. If you test positive, right, what does the team do? Does the entire team sit out, right? Like UFC, right, Sousa's cornermen got it. But th those guys, it wasn't an issue because they all just sat out. They couldn't compete. So if LeBron James comes down with it, right? Does the entire team have to sit out or is it just LeBron? So from a logistical level, um, it's it's going to be much harder for these team sports to come back as compared to UFC. Certainly. And I think that distinction between an individual sport and a team sport is an important one. It's one of the reasons why, as you said, these sports that are individual in nature are able to get back faster uh, than sports with team sports. And I definitely agree that unions are a big part of that as well. One of the things you touched on was that these individuals are agreeing to compete. So in that sense, they are signing away whatever rights they do under the current contract. However, there was something in the UFC contract that stood out to me, and I know it did for Pat as well, which was the contract asked for fighters to sign away the rights of others. I'm quoting here from a bloody elbow story on the topic uh, that says here, I have it. Yep. Uh, the spouse, domestic partner, children, parents, grandparents, step-parents, and stepchildren are also included, and the fighter is essentially waiving those rights. Is that something that's legally enforceable? <laughs> um, well, it's a catch-22. Uh, I guess let me ask you this, Mike. Who's going to be the one to test it, right? The fighters, and the fighters uh, don't have a union to protect them to the extent that they challenge the enforceability of it. Um, it's, not, it's not common. Um, you know, when you have a gag order, which is a fancy way of saying something like this, uh, it's usually just tied to the parties involved and maybe their attorneys. Um, but to extend to really, you know, different degrees of family members is not so common. I mean, I get why the UFC would want to do that. You know, it's it would kind of skirt around the issue, right? If you allowed uh, a fighter's wife to, you know, say that she doesn't feel safe for her husband, um, that still is, you know, not not looking good for the UFC. Um, it's definitely not common. Is it enforceable? I mean, someone's got to test it. Uh, and I could make the argument that it, it's overbroad is the term in the law, overbroad, unduly burdensome, because, you know, what are the fighters really giving up in exchange for this kind of restrictiveness? So um, is there a question of its legality? Sure. I don't, I don't think it's so cut and dry, so legal. But at the end of the day, someone, you know, within the UFC is going to have to test it. And you always run the risk uh, when you kind of go after uh, a Dana White, um, that you, you might just not be on the show the next time. So uh, it's catch-22. Is it enforceable to the extent, uh, I mean, is it unenforceable? Uh, yeah, maybe, but to the extent uh, someone actually has to challenge it, which uh, I think is unlikely given the current climate. And so let me just po pose this question to you then, a hypothetical, so to speak, to, to piggyback off of that. So let's say, you know, my brother is a fighter in the UFC and we live together. He goes out, uh, he fights, he's, he's hanging out with Jacare and then later it turns out, Oh, Jacare and his quarter men have tested positive and he comes back. He's feeling okay, but you know, he ends up testing positive and then I get sick and, and I test positive. Can I sue the UFC then? Because I didn't sign away anything. So my brother signed it 
you know, essentially signed away, waived my rights without my consent. I didn't know that they were going to be, you know, he was going to hang out with Jacare. He's going to test positive, all that. So now I've got it. Can I sue the UFC? And if I can, how, how do you see that going just from a broad standpoint? So you can't see my expression now because just my lovely avatar because we had some tech issues, but I'm doing that meme when the guy's touching his head like that was a really good thought. Um, so, Pat, it's, it's a good it's a good hypothetical. So I guess we, we haven't spoke about this, but let's say, I mean, at the end of the day in the law, you could sue anyone for anything. It's a completely different question as to whether or not you can win. Um, you know, I, in my practice, I see all sorts of crazy lawsuits that don't make any sense. Uh, someone was trying to, the other day I had a case, someone was trying to get a bed bug off their wall. They tried to hit it with the sandal, fell and they cracked their hip and they tried to sue the building. It's not the building's fault that you were doing like a, you know, a high wire kamikaze act on your couch. It's your fault. Um, so when it comes to this, right, Pat, could you sue, right? If you were infected secondhand through one of the UFC's protocols, sure, you, you could sue. But at the end of the day, um, something uh, in any type of case from from cr a coronavirus infection or um, you know anything like that, you you'd need to prove what's called proximate causation. You'd need to prove that something that the UFC did was careless or negligent um, and a reasonable person standard. Which I don't really know if what the UFC is doing is careless. They're being pretty. I mean, relatively safe, right? No one's saying that there's another way to do it that's more safe. Um, but at the end of the day, you'd have to A, show it was careless, which I'm not sure if you can get there, but B, that what the, the specific thing that they did was careless, that that was the proximate cause of your harm, not you going to CVS to, to pick up some, you know, some, uh, some food or going to Dwayne Reed or, you know, uh, driving or going for a run. You'd have to rule out all these other potential causes. So, Pat, could you sue the UFC? Sure. But this causation element is still very hard to show. Um, but, but I, know, I know Mike was asking about this earlier. The question of whether or not the UFC is careless in its protocol, that's still up for debate. I mean, at the end of the day, what's careless is, is based on this reasonable person standard. What, a, what is reasonable under the circumstances? You're never going to have a venue uh, in sports that's completely 100% safe from all possible harms whatsoever. You just need to do enough to protect your fighters so that it's reasonable. If a jury, God forbid something bad happens, you ask a jury, did these guys do enough? Um, and, you know, for where we are right now, um, you know, there would be an expert experts out there that would argue that this is reasonably safe to proceed under these you know circumstances. And although one fighter was tested positive for coronavirus, I mean, uh, we I mean, it's you know, we're only a couple days removed. But right now there's no harm that has resulted, which is another part of this test. So um, could you sue? Yes, you, you could. But I think there is tremendous legal hurdles to win, um, which is why, Pat, if I was your attorney, I would say a, a lawsuit is a little bit suspect right now. Certainly. And one of the things that stands out there is the reasonable assumption that uh, individuals and entities are being uh, made to reason with as far as liability or whether or not a case could be successful. One of the clauses in the contract is that no person with whom the participant expects to come into contact during the four weeks following the event date has or will have an underlying medical condition or other issue that puts that person at a greater risk. Is that something that a contract can seek to enforce, or is that something that may be, as you were saying, overbroad and particularly burdensome for fighters and participants who sign the contract? See, if you're the UFC, right, you understand why they're putting it in there. They want to make the language as favorable to them as possible. Um, but when it comes to the law, when it comes to something that's either ambiguous or overly broad or, or just something that doesn't seem right, um, those ambiguities are going to be viewed against uh, the drafting party. 
So I, I think it's overly broad. I don't really know what that means. So, so you, the UFC is going to have a, you know, a Google Nest camera in my house. They're going to be watching all the people that are coming in. I don't know how they would possibly enforce that. Um, but, you know, they're, they're thinking of a scenario that Pat just brought up with his example that, you know, Pat, let's say, has some, some pre, you know, some prior issue uh, and Pat gets sick and sues them. You know, I, I don't I just don't understand the legal mechanism of how they're going to be able to enforce something like this. So, you know, there's something in the law called, um, you know, striking a, a portion of a contract because it's against public policy. Uh, this contract seems to be very one sided and the players really are sorry, the, the fighters, in a sense, have no real ability to negotiate. It's almost a take it or leave it type deal. Um, and traditionally in the law, these are the type of situations where a type of clause like that could be deemed unenforceable. Um, not to say that this one will, because the fighters, of course, don't have to compete. They didn't have to sign this. It's not like there's a gun to their head. Um, there are different situations where you can imagine someone's entire business depends on them signing a particular contract. So you have a defense of what's called duress. Um, but here the fighters have free will to sign it or not sign it. So that's really the argument when, you, when you're thinking about enforceability. You're going to have bright lawyers on, on either side of the equation. Um, but to both of your points, I, it's not clear cut that this thing is legal. It seems like, you know, you, you guys, um, you know, I, I have a JD, but at the end of the day, it's this reasonable person standard. You guys are reasonable people looking at this. You could be on the jury one day. Does this look reasonable? I mean, to me, not really. Um, but, you know, again, it's not really a legal question. It's just for the reasonable person, what they think in the given circumstances. Yeah, no, and that's a great point in, in terms of, you know, at least from a layman's terms, I, I can't imagine that that's a, a legal, you know, reasonable standard. But, you know, it, it's it's hard to say without somebody actually challenging that. Um, in, and, and just to piggyback a little bit further off of what we're talking about here, um, there is another clause in there as well. Um, and I'm trying to pull it up here that essentially says it boils down to saying that um, you are not allowed they're not allowed to essentially speak about this agreement it says the participant will not suggest or communicate to any person or entity that the activities have been or will be held without appropriate health safety or other precautions while relating to covid 19 or otherwise it's part of what we talked about before but i am curious in in that sense of if another fighter let's say another fighter talks about it and then the ufc then makes a remark on that fighter right like let's say jacare says, you know what, I felt unsafe, this was an issue. UFC then responds and says, no, we thought we had all of, uh, you know, all these tests and, and things were up to snuff. We thought it was good. Can a fighter then, or part, media member or fighter then comment on what the UFC just said? With, or would that fall into this clause where they essentially just have to remain silent even if they're talking in other, um, even if that subject is out there and another fighter's already starting to talk back and forth between the entity? So again, you guys can't see my face, but I'm, again, I'm doing that little meme when the guy's touching his forehead like Pat. God, this is, these are good questions, Pat. You're firing him away. So um, in a confidentiality agreement normally, that's, that's kind of what this is. It's confidentiality, keeping confidences. Once one party breaches that confidence, uh, it's kind of open season. So for example, if I'm, having, if I'm an attorney, uh, well, good example, hypothetical, I am an attorney, but you know, it, you, if, if I'm in a situation where I'm at a diner with a client, um, and uh, I'm talking about our case, and someone behind me happens to overhear it. I've broken that confidence. Someone's heard it. I've said it in a public forum. So uh, that whatever I've said is now kind of open season. Uh, and I think that that's would apply here. If the, if the UFC breaches their own confidence and they start talking about the terms of this contract, right? Dana White was asked about this, and he actually denied that some of these 
uh, provisions were in place, which I mean, it's he's not he's not talking necessarily with agreement. He's denying that these are in there. So, um, but if he starts talking about different testing protocol, different contract provisions of the contract that we didn't see, that's a scenario where that that proverbial fourth wall would be broken, such that fighters might be able to talk about it. And I say might because at the end of the day, right? If you're a fighter and your livelihood depends on being in the UFC, you don't want to go to a lower league, you know, and 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 fight on a lower card. You're probably not going to want to test that. What benefit does it gain you? So. It's the same debate that for years, you know, UFC has been having, WWE has been having, you know, without a union, you don't, you, you, there's certain things that you can't do um, for fear of losing your job. And when you're the UFC or you're WWE and you're the only show in town, um, it's not really worth that risk on that calculus. So yes, on a legal sense, in a vacuum, could that be a scenario where you're now open and able to talk about this contract, um, you know, uh, without, without fear of being uh, any repercussions? hundred percent, but we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a world where UFC is king, uh, and to do so to to kind of try to skirt around that contract that comes with tremendous consequences, namely being the ability to fight in the UFC after that. Absolutely, and we keep circling back to this: the fact that UFC fighters and MMA fighters, more broadly, do not have a union. They are not classified as employees. They are, in fact, classified as independent contractors. The same is true for professional wrestling to the best of my knowledge. I'm not personally invested in that world. Do you believe that these provisions, these waivers and the clauses within them that we've talked about may or may not be enforceable and are, as you said, one-sided can translate over to sports with unions? Do you think that's going to be the new normal and will unions, in your opinion, accept these terms? So I, um, so there's some news today. I, you know, I, I try to cover all sports. You know, I'm, I'm a uh, fan of all things sports. UFC is the, the only show in town, though. And before that, it was WWE. So, Mike, I'm, I'm in the weeds of anything that, that is a live sport at this point. Um, the news on the, on the NBA front uh, today, right before we, we jumped on to record this, Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA reporter, uh, he's, he's reporting that the NBA was anonymously asked, uh, you know, players, I guess they're texting them, Yes or no, do you want to restart the season? Which I think is kind of a, you know, this is just me saying this. I don't think that that's such a helpful question. Of course, all of the players want to restart. The question is how they're going to restart. So I posed the question on Twitter, you know, and I, and I dropped into Woj's replies, which, you know, I'll pat myself on the back. I've, I've got Woj to reply to me before. Um, it's one of, you know, one, one day when I pass away, that'll be on my tombstone somewhere. Um, but, you know, I, I said the real question that NBA players should be being asked right now is are you willing to sign a full COVID-19 waiver in order to play? That's the real question, right? Everybody, of course, wants to play. And the NBA, of course, would want all the players to want to play because that's how they're going to derive their money. But the NBA is not going to open themselves up to a scenario where they might get hit with a ton of lawsuits. Whether or not they're successful or not is one thing. The PR hit is tremendous. If the players start getting sick one by one and the referees start getting sick and coaches start getting sick and, God forbid, the fans at some point start getting sick, the NBA is going to want to have protection, protections in place to, to prevent that, uh, to prevent these slew of lawsuits. Um, you know, I know different businesses are trying to make pitches to Congress to get a, uh, a federal exemption from liability from lawsuits against workers so they can return to work. That hasn't come in yet. Uh, and that's why the waiver conversation is still there. That's really your first line of defense. To the extent the government wants to come in and say, OK, you know, companies that are essential that are being, you know, that are going back to work and guys, 
Um, I'm sure you guys talk about this. Uh, in the state of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis declared, you know, UFC, WWE, all professional sports to be essential business. Um, but the, the scope of this proposed legislation would say essential business workers could not sue their employer um, because they would, you know, be immunized because we want to protect essential workers and essential businesses in some way, shape, or form. Um, so uh, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but but the, the question is, these sports are going to need to find a roadmap to come back. Absent federal legislation, the only way to really do that and to protect these leagues uh, from you know their employees is these waivers. So I, I think that's the million, you know, that's the million slash billion dollar question. And I don't think Dana White was lying. I think that the sports, you know, organizations were calling him. Um, you know, we've seen it reported across the sports landscape. You know, you know, Gavner, um, you know, Gavin Newsom is the, the governor of the state of California. He's been on the phone, you know, with with you know, Rob Manfred at Major League Baseball. All these conversations are happening across sports. I know, you know, where I'm from in New York, Andrew Cuomo is on the phone with the Mets owners. Um, these conversations are happening. And I don't doubt it for a second that sports organizations are calling Dana White to get his blueprint. And I could very, very much see a situation where the, the UFC blueprint is adopted across all sports. And that would be, yeah, I mean, that would be huge. And and like as you said, obviously the wheels have been turning now for a while to try and get sports back. Um, and and when you're talking about adopting the UFC blueprint for all sports, there is one particular clause too that I was curious about that I feel like plays a big difference between the UFC and other sports like the NBA, MLB, and things like that. And that clause states here that costs of any and all medical treatment or disability and all other costs associated with the symptoms, harms, carrier risks, and all other harms, risks, dangers, and injuries associated with COVID-19 is on the signee for the UFC contracts. So that means if, you know, whether I'm a fighter, a quarterman, whoever, if I get sick with COVID, all the medical costs are on me. Is that something that you could see unions essentially giving up if you know players were like we want to come back we want to do this so bad that's that's clearly a big sticking point uh is that something you imagine that unions could agree to or players might agree to so just to give you kind of a point of reference so there is um you know different different leagues different teams have different liability uh you know language on their tickets for fans um, I know that it's made the rounds at some point, but the Philadelphia 76ers, just for an example, their, you know, their, uh, we'll say their waiver on the back of their ticket says that the 76ers are, you know, immune from all types of liability, any, any potential harm, no matter how big, no matter how small, 76ers are immune from it. Um, those don't really hold up to the extent that, that there's nothing possible related to COVID-19 that could be tied to the UFC at all. Um, that, that's again, that, that language I'm using is overbroad. I mean, you could have a waiver, but does it need to just, you know, the UFC can't be touched at all whatsoever, one penny, one nickel? Um, I don't I don't think that that makes sense. I don't think that's, that's again, you know, we never know how it's going to turn out in law, but those are traditionally the ones that are viewed as being overly broad and, again, just very one-sided. Um, you know, I, I think the the worry in, in the team sports versus UFC, you know, these teams have these giant medical steps, and they're part of a team, right? There is a a whole network of doctors ready to help them on their particular team. And they have contracts and guaranteed salaries that are in place. Whereas the UFC, they're paid on a per fight basis for the most part. Um, you know, you get your, you get more money obviously when you fight. Uh, so I, I think that's why the UFC can probably get away with that language to some extent, because there is no team infrastructure placed around a given player. Um, these guys are all uh, for better or for worse. They're independent contractors. They're not part of a union. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, question, you know, again, but I, I think the the broader that that you know um, 
that language is, the more favorable, and it doesn't really provide any relief whatsoever to the uh, to the fighters. Um, I think again that that's something resembling uh, language more that's that's deemed to be unenforceable under public policy. Certainly, and one final question for me. I don't, I don't know, Pat, how how you are as far as I'm, I'm good. He's been as thorough as could be, and you know I'm I'm in. He's talking to a man that had watch reply to him. You know I'm just. There's not much more for me to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. So on that note, just one final question for me. Obviously, the contract that was signed by fighters and media alike was virtually identical to quote Mike Goldberg. Wow, that was a good inside reference there. Uh, one of the former UFC commentators there, that's his catchphrase. Anyway, what I was saying is the contracts are virtually identical, but the fighter is contracted to the UFC separately from the agreement, whereas media members obviously work for the outlet they work for. They are not necessarily, uh, I know employees is a difficult term when fighters are classified as independent contractors, but they're not employed by the UFC. In that sense, does the non-disparagement clause carry more weight for a fighter than it would for a media member because of their existing relationship? See, I, I'm, see, it's a tough question. I mean, I mean, really, in this sense, you have to kind of think of media members as almost like closer to fans when they open up the arenas. You know, the media, in some sense, you know, actually, I used to work in PR for the Giants. We we basically would give uh, media members the credential to walk into the stadium in order to get backstage, you know, or behind the scenes access, locker room access to speak to the players. So there was a portal that you had to walk through, you know, the NFL, the NFL being you know, the New York Giants were one of 32 NFL teams. So, you know, the media doesn't work for the teams. They're not, you know, uh, for the UFC, they're not paid by the UFC. Um, but there is kind of, you know, you have to kind of, uh, we'll say bend at the knee to the UFC because they're the ones that give you your access. Um, so, uh, you know, is there certain liability waivers you, that you'd have to sign? I mean, I can imagine that's something that makes sense. I mean, we, when I worked for the Giants, we'd be up at spring train or summer camps up in Albany. And there were situations you could imagine, right? These the reporters um, at training camp were sitting on the sidelines, you know, standing on the sidelines, you know, right where coaches and players would normally be, just because it's summer camp and you could do whatever you want. If a player, you know, the ball was an errant ball was thrown, and and a guy tried to make a catch and ran someone over, you could see a liability situation there. So um, definitely not unheard of to have these kind of questions asked. Now, when it comes to speaking negatively about the organization. Uh, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's the role of the media, right? The media's got to be able to have uh, freedom of the freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Um, I think that's just interesting. I mean, so I, I saw the same stuff that you guys did on Twitter. Various members of the media were saying, you know, you can't be a member of the media if you sign this. Um, but again, you know, in, in a vacuum, yes, that's right. You can't sign it. But, you know, on the other hand, in order to attend the event, it's not, it's not like, you know, um, there is another UFC. The UFC is the, the biggest show in town. So if you want to have access to it, you kind of do have to bend at the knee. And again, I'm not in support of it. I just understand the reasoning as to why someone would want to sign under those conditions. You know, it's, uh, you know, reporter ethics, reporter, the code of conduct, whether or not you, you're able, you know, you have your conscience to sign it, but, but that's why they're signing it. Again, is something like that enforceable for, to someone that's not, you know, being paid by you, that's not under your control? I don't, again, it doesn't, there might be a scenario where that's not actually enforceable, that the UFC can't sue you to sue you for it after the fact. But again, what benefit does it, does it serve you to, you know, not do good by the UFC and then just be blackballed from all access forever? Um, so again, 
the delicate balancing act. Um, but uh, you know, that's this is the the world you run into with the UFC, WWE, where these sports where you know there's one guy that's at the helm, be it Dana, you know Dana White, Vince McMahon. Um, you guys catch drift. It's just a different world in team sports with unions where it's definitely more of a democratic feel. A hundred percent. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so I don't know about you, Michael. I've learned, you know, more than I've probably ever learned about law in terms of, uh, in terms of my college education. So, uh, Dan, again, I really want to appreciate, uh, or I really appreciate you coming on. Really want to thank you, uh, for, you know, sharing the knowledge with us, uh, as this, you know, situation unfolds as, as other leagues start looking at contracts, things like that. Um, where can we find you? Where can we keep keep uh keep up with you so i'm at sports law lust on twitter uh i uh i hit the ufc but i i hit you know really all sports um but again you know i'm at the end of the day i'm just a huge sports fan uh i happen to go to law school and uh you know i just i kind of try to look at sports through a legal lens so if you're into sports you know if you're into business you're into law you want to see kind of the behind the scenes of of how the union works or the lack of union works um, that's what I'm here for. And, uh, you know, as you guys mentioned at the top, uh, I speak, uh, on radio across the country, locally, nationally. So, uh, I try to post all my clips uh, to the extent that anybody, uh, gives a, gives a, you know, what about what I'm saying. Well, I definitely do. I'm sure Michael does as well. Uh, thank you again so much. We'll definitely keep up with you and thanks again for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks guys.